This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Only Off-Track. Gatekeeping. And my plunder of Moe's Books. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can... And influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The words in pre-Adamic carved into the basalt of the living rock tell us that we are once more in the presence of divine wisdom, or as we like to call it in these parts, that thing I always say. And Robin has a new thing that he always says, uh, besides ha 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 ha, his new thing is, the only off track is a dead end track, and I think that that's gnomic. Uh, almost koanic enough to make a thing that I always say. So, Robin, why don't you divigate upon that newest of our commandments? Yeah, so I found myself at a panel the other week saying this thing, and as I was saying it, I thought, not only is that something I am currently saying, but that sounds like a thing I always say, a thing I should always say from uh, now on. And the, the thing that I always say now is, the only off track is a dead end track. And you might guess from this that we were talking uh, a, a GM masterclass panel, and almost inevitably when people ask questions at a GMing panel, they ask about keeping the players on track. And uh, so let, let's unpack what this, uh, what this maxim means. First of all, let's get to the, the proviso, the, the sort of uh, the asterisk at the beginning, which is that we're assuming for this discussion that you have at least the average ability uh, within the context of the session you're running to improvise, to react to player choices and do things. Right. There are cases where you're not free to fully improvise. Uh, for example, in a convention scenario where you're, uh, you know, wanting one track of, say, like a Pathfinder Society module where the expectation is that everybody will kind of stick to the same basic situation. Or, for example, a Gumshoe one-to-one as seen in Cthulhu Confidential, uh, it assumes that your ability to improvise is somewhat limited because you as GM are on stage half the time along with the single player who's also on stage. Now, that game 
uh, creates backstops in order to prevent you from going uh, too far from the narrative, which is not a single track, but a choice between many routes through an adventure. That having been said, most of the time when you're worried about keeping your players on track, you are trying to keep them uh, into what you think of as a set or a preset narrative or a set range of choices uh, within uh, your adventures. So, Ken, what do you think of when people uh, ask you how they stay on track? What do you think they're talking about when they say on track versus off track? I think there's a couple of things that people can be talking about in sort of from narrower to wider. They may be saying, like you say, that they have a preset narrative. This is the story of how you busted into the castle, defeated the goblins, and rescued the princess. And if instead of busting into the castle and defeating the goblins, they bust in the castle and uh, make friends with the goblins, or they bust into the castle and kill the princess, people are like, well, you're, you're going off track. Or it may be a question of, they didn't even go to the castle. They went off to some other place. And you know, you didn't, you didn't have that written up. And so you have to sort of scramble and make up some wandering monsters when they are hijacking the boat and going off to the magical island of, um, uh, eternal plenty, which you are idiot enough to tell them about. Or the third and most egregious sort of thing is they don't want to play a fantasy adventure at all. They don't want to, uh, have any of the conventions that would obtain. They want to run around and, and, uh, you know, either, uh, misbehave in person, quoting Monty Python and screwing around on their phone or their, taking other sorts of assumptions into the game that you didn't want. This is generally worse with a stronger genre narrative. So if you've got a an attempt to run sort of um, a samurai and a player character insists on behaving like a 21st century American instead of a samurai, they would be going off track in the sense of they'd be blowing the genre constraints and the whole reason you're playing samurai out the window. And so all of those could be off track. But I suspect... That we mean one and two, not necessarily three. Right. N- number three, I think, is better term premise rejection. Right. Uh, we've talked about that uh, before, and we'll talk about it again. But for the purposes of, of this discussion, let's assume that everybody's on board to have fun playing, but they do something unexpected. And you're wondering, do I try to get them back onto what it is that I expected them to do? Do I try and to get so them back would, to that castle? Right. And so the, the idea of there being a track, of course implies that uh, they are succeeding when they are making the choice that you expect them to make and that you're trying to herd them back onto that track. So I would propose, I think, a more useful distinction, which is have they gone off track or have they merely gone off-road? Off-road being they've gone off in another direction that you didn't expect them to go, but what they're going to do once they get there is, A, obviously something that interests them or they wouldn't have gone, you know, down... Uh, you know, instead of going to the castle where the goblins and the princess are, they decide to, well, what about these, uh, these farmers over here? What are they up to? Are they, do, do they need our help? Uh, so they have uh, gone, uh, off road, but they have moved toward some sort of interesting thing that could possibly happen because as soon as they pose the question, what are these farmers up to? The answer could be uh, many different things. You could decide that, oh, well, obviously if they want to go, investigate the farmers. That's a seven samurai situation. There's going to be an orc raid and they'll be hired to defend against the the orcs or in fact the goblins who I happen to have. Coincidentally enough, astonishingly, I have stats for goblins. So guess what? If they go over to the village, obviously they would rather save the villagers than the, than the princess. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're down for the class struggle. So uh, they have decided to do a different thing that is nonetheless interesting and full of potential, 
they have gone off-road. Uh, now, depending on how complex the game stats are in your uh, system of choice, you may have to scramble a little, or, as I just suggested, you can reuse the game statistics that you already have on hand, but uh, repurpose them to a completely different narrative outcome, because, of course, the results of their succeeding or failing to protect the villagers will be, story-wise, much different than their uh, uh, success or failure in uh, rescuing the princess, but they can still fight their way through the same set of game mechanics on their way to doing that. So that that works. It's it sort of what I've, uh, I think, mentioned before, the Schrodinger's beggar, or if you've got something written up, you got a bunch of goblins, let's, you know, turn them into goblin pirates if they're going to see. Um, what if you are in a more gumshoey sort of scenario where there is a mystery to be solved and there is a monster that is depredating the, the area and they have to figure out what's going on and they are off track in the sense that you know because there is no way that this is going to solve the mystery or there are some other constraint that prevents you from just saying, oh, weirdly enough, the pirates were also behind the monster somehow. Um, is there a, is it, what's, what's off track for gumshoe? Because that seems to have at least a trail of footprints, if not an actual, uh, track. Right. So gumshoe presupposes that the characters are interested in solving a mystery and motivated to do so, uh, and that there are multiple possible routes to solving that mystery. So just as a goblin fight is, uh, a, a unit of storytelling in, uh, a D20 game, uh, just as it's, you know, like the musical number in a musical that forwards the story, uh, here the acquisition of clues is the, the union of, of storytelling in a gumshoe game. So if they decide, well, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm gonna go over here and talk to these, uh, guys who work in this warehouse who seem kind of shady and you just describe the warehouse and answer their question, it's not in your notes. Again, uh, rather than having, you know, a goblin fight there, there is some way of getting a clue that will lead you back into the pre-established set of scenes so that even though you did not expect the guys in the warehouse to know anything about the uh, cultists who perform rituals up in the hills, well, it turns out that, uh, oh, well, one of them uh, was actually up in the hills uh, managing a delivery the other night, and if you talk to them the right way, uh, with or without a, a dust-up because you're sneaking into a warehouse, then you get that bit of information. So although gumshoe on the surface seems to be something that is hard to uh, work your way through in terms of getting people back toward the, the eventual goal that they're uh, assumed as part of a mystery solution, in fact, that's actually pretty easy to do. It's just as you would move your goblins around, you move your uh, clues around. What I would like to talk about now is the difference between... Uh, or, or what is truly off track. And I would argue that once the players go in a direction where you cannot see an interesting outcome, that is off track. That is when you have to try and yank them back into not necessarily the story you had in mind, but any interesting story that is better than the direction they're headed in. And often you find yourself constrained as to uh, what you can possibly do in an adventure when the uh, players are, or one of the players is determined to make a choice that would uh, either ruin the uh, tone of your setting or conflict with the pre-established facts of your setting or just otherwise see, seem unbelievable if it goes anywhere other than stoppage and disaster. So the classic example there is you've established a 
a tough and powerful and daunting and horrible bad guy who they have to be really careful and smart in order to overcome. Perhaps they can't even fight them directly, uh, but they've got to overcome them in some other way. And you spend a lot of time explaining how that's the case, making that real. And then one of the players goes, well, I just go up and punch him. And we've talked about the king punching thing uh, again, and, the, and that's uh, an example of something let, that you either have to radically violate your world or tone or go, okay, well, I guess he kills you or I guess he puts you in prison forever. Now you can, now if you can see an interesting way out of that, by definition, you're still not off track. You're not at a dead end. But there are times when you just can't see any way out of a story that is interesting. And that's the only off track that I would argue that you want to steer people away from. Can you think of other dead ends that uh, uh, sort of take away the choice of interestingness from the GM? Well, I mean, I think dead ends sort of shade into what you talked about as premise threat uh, or premise rejection. So if you are uh, Cthulhu investigators and you've run across, you know, something horrible and creepy in Vermont and it's like, well, we got to go to Vermont and look into the thing and someone's going to lose their face and that's going to happen. And the players say, you know what? I've got a brother-in-law in Cleveland. Let's go to Cleveland and, you know, help him with those thugs that are beating him up. And you put the Cleveland mob in just as an off mention and they're like, yeah, let's go fight gangsters instead of uh, uh, dealing with this thing in Vermont. Let's stop being Cthulhu investigators. Let's just beat up on gangsters. And if you, the GM, are believing that the interesting thing about playing uh, Trail of Cthulhu or Call of Cthulhu is the Cthulhu, not necessarily the robust combat system, you would say, oh, yeah, I can imagine a game in which a bunch of Mythos investigators become gangland terrors, but it's not a fun game, and it's not going to be fun with this rule setter. It's not going to be fun with this player group or it's not going to be fun because I only literally know one thing about the Cleveland mob, which is it was in Cleveland, then I could see, see that as being a off track situation, right? Because it in in theory, it's not premise rejection. No, no, it's still the 1930s. We're still horribly racist, but it's not <laughs> premise rejection in the sense yes. that we're going to place some calls just not to Cthulhu. Right, exactly. We're, we're going to go on a trail, but of entirely mortal foes. And then you have the choice, I guess, if they go to Cleveland, of rapidly Wikipediaing up Cleveland, looking stuff up, and then sure enough, oh yeah, Cleveland, of course, is a hotbed of the mythos. Everywhere is a hotbed of the mythos, you jerks. That's what the mythos is. And so now, instead of all the great stuff you had for New England, you have to set it all in the Midwest somehow. Right. And that can still be on track if you can come up with some way, as you suggest, for there to be another horror there, or... In the horror genre, if they run away from the threat, it's just, well, okay, now we're doing It Follows, right? That the It's absolutely a staple of horror that the characters run away and the horrible things chase them. Um, another even more challenging dead end is when a player says, well, I just go home. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do... Yeah, I'm just going to go and do some research for a couple of weeks. And so uh, that's a case where in order to get them back on the track, where the track is to any direction toward any interesting thing other than nothing, you then, I think, essentially have to turn it around on the player and say, well, instead of that, what interesting choice do you make? <laughs> Give me anything, anything to work with. And that's an example where you finally have to uh, break the fourth wall entirely and just give the person a heads up that they're, for whatever reason, uh, whether it's uh, temperament or 
you know, that they are still working on the old paradigm of, you know, you not only have to give me a motivation, but you have to uh, haul me kicking and screaming to engagement with your storyline. I mean, I, I guess wanna... if only one player says, I go home and do research, then in theory, you can say, great, you go home and do research. What's everyone else doing? Right. But if they all say, no, we're going to go back to our, our, our fortified home base, which is festooned with elder signs and machine gun nests and do research. Then, like you say, you either have to do an it follows, which is that the monsters, you know, attack them and ruin their home base and make it impossible to do that again. Or you say, okay, tell me how many murders have to happen for you to leave your home base, because it turns out you don't have enough information in your home base. That's why you left it in the first place. Yes. And in Gumshoe, a a more likely dead end is just that the players run out of imagination to see the many choices you have put before them. And so, again... Just having them sit there talking after they've talked their way through all the options and they're still not doing anything, that is a dead end. And that is you get them back on track by reminding them of what choices are before them and sort of guiding them in their discussion toward actually picking one of those things to go and do. Right. Because and that's sort of on the bubble between uh, what you were saying, the GM directly addressing the player. Look, this isn't fun. Do something fun. And sort of the in-character, as trained investigators, you know that you've narrowed down your leads to these three. Which do you think you'd like to follow now? Yes. And on the whiteboard, you'll notice that, unlike the players who rejected the obvious course of action immediately, <laughs> the characters have circled it in red. <laughs> so take a look at that. Because if you go there, guess what? It's not a dead end. It's not a track, because you've got choice A, B, and C. But you've got choice A, B, and C. You don't have no choices. Look at those choices. Look at those juicy, beautiful choices. So I, I would encourage GMs when you're thinking uh, that there's a track that you have to keep the players on, as long as they're going somewhere fun, as long as you can think of some interesting conflict and excitement, and whether it's uh, horror or superhero antics or uh, space exploration, whatever the game is, as long as you can think of something cool you can either just let them flat out explore it or let them flat explore it. And then once they're there, they will find some sort of reminder of what you thought they may be were going to do that night. And whether you're going to do that or not depends on whether you're doing something totally sandboxy or as in the case of an investigative game like Gumshoe, there's uh, an implicit contract between uh, the players and the GM that there's a mystery that you're going to solve. So at some point you're going to resolve that set of plot threads before you move on to other ones. And at this point, um, I think we're going to go off-road uh, through this exciting commercial and uh, see what we're going to find on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, 
caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Vivaldi string quartet in the corner, cucumber sandwiches cut with the crusts off, decorous cups of delicate Peking OT. Welcome us once more to the cult. Oh no, that's the culture of gaming. It's still Doritos and Dyson miniatures and Peter Frampton, but we're talking about it, not playing it because in the culture of gaming, Robin and I take a eye over all y'all with the benevolent uh, love that is our characteristic, and occasionally we have to issue just a little tiny bit of a correction. Robin, you have an issue with gatekeeping. Namely, you want to keep the gatekeepers out. So tell me what they've done to you now. <laughs> well, they haven't done anything to me. Right, of but, course they can't. Uh, guess what, Ken? There's new things happening in our hobby. Huh? And so therefore there are some people who think that's not our hobby. and that, uh, n- None of them are our listeners, I must say. Of course not. But there might be some people telling other people to get off their lawns. Yes. So gatekeeping is a thing in pretty much every pursuit, uh, professional as well as hobby, um, and sometimes seems odd in the context of a, a fun hobby activity like adventure gaming. But ever since uh, there was a second way to do gaming, the there were people who liked the first way who uh, became very angry and upset and territorial. No doubt there were people who were saying, you weren't at Dave Arneson's that night, you're not a gamer. Even more so than that, there were people who were hardcore war gamers who literally wrote Gary Gygax out of their lives, and like there were angry confrontations from traditional war gamers against Gary Gygax, who was part of a war game club, for ruining the hobby by creating role-playing. So... This is well, a thing that goes fairness, all the way back. Uh, history proves they had a point. <laughs> well, so so I guess the, the question of, of gatekeeping is, or, or one of the, the fears behind gatekeeping, is the fear that the thing that you like is going to be destroyed because everybody is going to go and enjoy this new thing and leave you out in the cold, and you're not going to be able to get enough players to play whatever the, the thing you're is. I think, I think some of it is also just the sort of standard, I like it this way, you want to make it not this way, you are therefore trying to wreck it. And the notion that other people can have fun in their own way is one that is foreign to many people uh, in many facets of life. Right. And uh, I remember back when collectible trading cards came along and you had exactly the same reaction. Again, with some of the same historical justification. But aside from, you know, changing the law, the, the iron law of turn rate, what happened is, of course, that wargaming became a different hobby from role-playing games and collectible card gaming became a different hobby from role-playing games. And all of them sort of meet in some, well, at, at, at origins at least, but maybe nowhere else, but they all meet in some uh, nebulous Venn diagram of gaming, but right. All and they all feed things... into each other and make the hobby stronger and more robust in ways that perhaps uh, if you just play games, you don't notice, but right. if there's all sorts of different kinds of games that you can sell in stores that 
means that retailers are more viable. Exactly. That means that conventions are able to attract more people. And people who show up at a convention and take part in a track that you're not interested in, whether that's the costume track or the minis painting or whatever newfangled thing will come along in 10 years, they are still making that convention more possible. Now, I guess there you have some sort of a, there is a legit gatekeeping concern in uh, as conventions get too big, you might say, well, I, I wish this was, you know, 1999 again, and we didn't, I didn't have to fight for hotel space at this convention that can't accommodate everybody. So there are, uh, I don't want to dismiss the idea that the hobby getting bigger is possibly bad in some instances for some people. Certainly anyone. As, as my worldview reminds me constantly, there is no such thing as an unmixed blessing. So yes, <laughs> but the, the, the latest question to come along and, and often you hear, uh, gatekeeping concerns not expressed in that way, not as in I will find it harder to find people to play games or, you know, that uh, the convention will be too full and I, the prices will go up and I won't be able to get a room near the convention center. But this person isn't a real gamer. And so uh, what we're hearing about now is with the advent of streaming, where there are all sorts of either large uh, sets of folks who watch tabletop role playing games being played, but have not yet, and I'm putting it that way deliberately, have not yet played uh, themselves. And so our latest uh, gatekeeping controversy then is, are these real members of our hobby or are they something else? And often you will find people try to define their tastes as being objective so that, you know, this isn't a real role-playing game, meaning this isn't a game I want to play. and Or in this case, they're defining out people who enjoy our hobby vicariously uh, by watching things on, on uh, Twitch streaming or on YouTube afterwards as not being really part of the hobby. But my next question would be, how many people have spent periods of years even just reading role-playing books and imagining that you had a group, but you didn't have a group that you could get together with uh, for whatever life reason, and still remaining part of a hobby by reading the books that's traditionally been a pretty large audience for us so with some games the majority of it yeah so how different is it to get your vicarious enjoyment of gaming from streaming than from reading the books and i think that part of it is just generational because i mean you and i i i think i can uh share this confidence on the air with our beloved listeners still can't believe that streaming is a thing it just seems insane to, I think, both of us that you would watch someone play D&D or any other role-playing game even. But I know it happens. I know people do it. And my inability to understand why something is attractive does not ipso facto make it not attractive to those people. I mean, I, I would have the same trouble with, with any number of things that I won't invidiously indicate here. Right. But Well, it, it certainly makes more sense to me than the fact that there are extremely large numbers of people in South Korea who will watch live streaming of other South Koreans eating. <laughs> right? Oh, well, this South is a person who I tune into people, every day to watch him eat noodles. Yes. It makes a lot more sense to watch somebody's Call of Cthulhu game than somebody eating noodles. So there, there's a continuum. Yeah, I, guess, I guess when you look at the vast panoply of things you can watch on YouTube, right. watching people play D&D is more interesting than many of them. Yeah, I think that's true. But uh, but but I think that your 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 argument comparing watching the drama, let's say, let's use the term, watching the drama of role playing, and reading the books about role playing, closet drama, is is a strong one. And it, I think you could make the same argument, for example, that 
I'm sure there are jazz men and jazz women out there who say, if you're not, if you don't play, you're not really jazz. You're just the audience. You don't count. You're, you're not a hepcat. And I guess if you're a jazz player, that makes sense, but you would want people to watch because it's a performing art, even though it's also very interior in a way that maybe other things are not. D and D and other role playing games feel super interior because you're creating this whole thing in your head. And so I think that you can have a sense, and I'm not saying that it is a correct sense, but I'm saying you can have the sense that if you're not living it inside your head that way and engaging in it, then your understanding of the hobby may be superficial, just as you might say, and people have said to me, um, if you just read the rules, it's not the same thing as playing the game. And I get, yes, it's not the same thing, but it is a way to evaluate that, that game or a way to uh, know more about that game. And you'd, you'd be surprised, a surprising amount about that game can be gathered just by reading it. And similarly, I think people, I, I would certainly not put my knowledge of Vampire uh, up against a lot of the very true uh, World of Darkness fans who've been reading every single word of uh, World of Darkness content since it came out uh, 20 years ago, even though I'm designing vampire. So in theory, you know, there's only like nine people who are bigger vampire fans than me, but I would never say, oh, you're not a real vampire fan uh, person I met at the convention who's got all the clan tattoos on them and things like that, because obviously they're, they are part of the larger imaginative universe of vampire and maybe even a deeper part than I am. And I think in the same way, someone who spends, you know, 40 hours a week watching D and D has as least as good an argument to be part of the hobby as I do, who spend four hours a week playing 13th age. Right. Right. And I think part of this also masks sort of changes in culture and, and cultural concern, because if you see your hobby as a, way to be comfortable around people who are much like you and have the same sort of unstated uh, assumptions about uh, socialization and how you behave. If a uh, the new generation of new blood that uh, people my age have been uh, yearning for for decades, now they're all of a sudden <laughs> they're here and it's like, oh my gosh, they've got weird anime hair and there's they're they're approaching gender balance and they have, you know, this other language of talking about, uh, you know, safe spaces and social justice. And, um, and so, uh, there's also, I think, an understanding about real things like flanking bonuses, like flanking bonuses or, you know, or, you know, to have our, will they know all of the Monty Python references? Will they consider that let's, the height of let's, wit? To, let's hope not. To, to quote Python. I, I suspect <laughs> they still do actually know the Python references, but. Oh, but, I'm, um, I'm crossing my fingers. That the new generation, a generation will come among us who knows not uh, Graham Chapman. Right. So we've stipulated already that, of course, uh, none of our listeners would ever uh, think about gatekeeping. And we're talking so far uh, about Our the, listeners are among the most hospitable and welcoming of, of right. gamers. And, I know that. And certainly they are not among the toxic gatekeepers of the, of the Gamergate variety, which is basically a, uh, turns out to be a, a front for alt-right recruiting. Uh, which sounds insane, like so many other things that are currently actually really happening. Um, and so the, I, I guess it behooves us as people who are, uh, sufficiently into the hobby to either be Ken or Robin or to listen to Ken and Robin to try and talk people down from their gatekeeping impulses and encourage them to think of, uh, the fact that other people have found a new way to enjoy our hobby, even ironically, They've found a way to enjoy our hobby that takes out the thing that we think 
defines it, i.e. the fact that it's interactive, mm-hmm. turn it back into a passive entertainment where it's suddenly more accessible, that's perhaps something we can enjoy as being sort of an inter- interesting, funny irony while trying to uh, welcome people to uh, join us and share what it is that we uh, love about this hobby and try to talk uh, people who are gatekeepery or threatened about it uh, down so that they are not discouraging people from joining, but seeing the advantages of having uh, new folks enter our field. Well, I think in the same way that no one ever acts in a play without watching a play, uh, no one ever makes a movie without watching a movie. The fact of watching role playing means that they, they are, as you said, potential players that they have not yet played and maybe they never will. Maybe they'll never get around to it. Maybe everyone around them is a, a, a jerk or, or, uh, is playing a game that they don't think is interesting for another reason, but they're potential players. They're part of the orbit, the penumbra, the, uh, the solar system of gaming. And we don't know, uh, because this is not the Newtonian world. We don't know where anyone's orbit is going to go. I mean, we often say that people in our field, sometimes they, they get caught up and they go off to, to make computer games. And we say, well, it's a shame that they're not in gaming anymore, even though, of course, by any logical standard, a fellow like Rich Dansky or John Times is more in gaming than we are because they're doing a thing that literally millions of people are playing, whereas you and I are not necessarily doing that. And so... Yes, their form of, of gaming is weird because it has hit points and levels and you get experience... Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, right. You know, it's, it's, yeah, okay. it's weird because it's culturally relevant and people pay you for it. <laughs> That's right. what makes it weird. And another thing to <laughs> keep in mind is that, uh, you know, you can tell folks who seem threatened by the people who aren't really playing. Well, then how does that ever affect you? <laughs> right. It's like <laughs> if, if literally those people are just staying home watching Twitch and YouTube and are never coming into contact with gaming, why do you need to tell them they're not real? Like how, how are they? They're not affecting you at all. What you may really be worried about are the people who are really coming to game conventions and do want to play, but maybe in a style that is slightly different from yours and may require you to, you know, figure out what an X card is and, and be, uh, you know, open to, uh, you know, whippersnappers of, of a new generation who may have some different assumptions about things. I mean, I mean, a, a, a good part of it also is that there is a, there is a universal human desire to tell other people what to do. And this is just yet another example of that. I mean, the, yeah. the, the notion that just because it doesn't affect you, you don't have an opinion on it is one that sadly is foreign to most people. Yes. Well, th- that's that's the crazy idea that uh, I'm suggesting we perhaps introduce to our, our more gatekeepery friends is that, uh, is that uh, uh, every man under his own vine and fig tree and none making him afraid. Yes, exactly. I, I, I think it could catch on, Robin. It could catch on. So I guess that's sort of the, the list of, of things that you can keep in mind when uh, when one of your pals is is getting crotchety about uh, about these streamers today is, uh, you know, remind them that, uh, you know, they may very well turn into uh, the person who will uh, heal you up when you want to go down into the dungeon. And even if not, the skin is not from your proboscis. And on that note, uh, let's head on through and see what awaits us on the other side of this commercial.
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Open the only gate that matters, the Patreon gate. Joining such backers as... Corey Welch. David Mascari. John Rogers. Ross Ireland. And Graham Wills. We come finally to the segment where you might hear a sort of a, a soft uh, sort of brushing sound. And it took me a while to f- realize what this sound was. And in fact, what it was, is, or what it is, is that Ken is lovingly caressing... The books that he has acquired on a recent book read, because this is Ken's Bookshelf, the segment where we vicariously enjoy a stack of books that our bibliomain has liberated from a bookstore during his travels. And this is the 2018 Bay Area Book Hall. You got these books from Moe's Books, which I believe you've mentioned in the past, so we don't need to describe Moe's again, do we? I don't believe that we do, although if you are in Berkeley or in the Berkeley area and do not know what Moe's looks like, I urge you to go and look at it and then buy a lot of books because it is a magnificent bookstore. Uh, that, that was not the only bookstore that I went to. Friend of the podcast, Charles Picard, took me to another bookstore and to a different bookstore entirely and to a library book sale, a permanent library book sale where I got a a lovely number of books, but uh, the Moe's books all came in the same box at the same time and uh, made a lovely stack. So my apologies to Charles, but all the books that he no doubt dreamed of hearing about on the podcast, he will only have to uh, hear what I said about them when I bought them. But uh, for those looking for the social history of crossing the North Atlantic or uh, tourist guides to Ephesus, Turkey, know that I got them from Charles Picard, not from Moe's. Yes, well, uh, Ken's Bookshelf is one segment. It is not all the segments. It is not all the segments. So the uh, first one... Uh, on the list here is The Queen's Mirror, Fairy Tales by German Women, 1780 to 1900, edited and translated by Sean C. Jarvis and Janine Blackwell. Yeah, this is basically the, it's, it's sort of the, you know, br- the ladies grim, I guess. It's a bunch of German fairy tales. As you can tell, since it goes through to 1900, a number of them have become a little bit more culturally deliberately produced and a little less uh, gathered up off the street, a la the Grimm's. And of course, the Grimm's gathered a lot of their fairy tales from, uh, women's, uh, sewing circles and the like as well. So they were gathering women's fairy tales. They were just putting their, uh, Grimm boy stamp on it. This is 
almost all, I mean, except for the ones that are uh, anonymous, obviously, we don't know for sure, but they're all by female authors, gathered by female authors, presented by female authors. And so, therefore, they have an even more explicitly female take, although not necessarily a modern take, because it's the frickin' 1800s and things are weird then, and things are even weirder in the world of fairy tales. But it's a good addition, I think, to the fairy tale canon. There's uh, lots of wonderful stuff in it. Uh, there's one by Catherine the Great, even. God bless her. And so you can't hardly get better than that. Right. So is that a fairy tale about how you should obey Catherine the Great? There's, I don't know if the moral is pay attention. It's actually, it looks like it's a, a Tatar uh, parable or a Mongol parable. So it, it should be all manner of fun. And next up, we have Rainbow in Abyssinia by Alan Beret. Uh, this is uh, Artur Rainbow, not... Uh, John Rambo. Right. Uh, what's he up to in Abyssinia? He is uh, possibly gun running is one of the many wonderful things. Uh, basically, as we know, he was a big old poet and then scampered off to Abyssinia. And people said, well, I guess he disappeared. And it's not he didn't disappear. He just went somewhere where he stopped answering your mail. Um, he, <laughs> <laughs> it's, he's not Judge Crater. He's J.D. Salinger. Yes, he, he, he escaped for a while. Yes. So I remember, I remember uh, w- way back in the day, there was a novel and a movie called Eddie and the Cruisers, and it mentioned the mysterious disappearance of Artur Rambaud. And that was my introduction to Rambaud, was that. And I said, oh, a m- disappeared poet. This is my meat and drink. And I looked it up, and it's like, he didn't disappear at all. He just went to Ethiopia. Um, but it turns out he was a gun runner and uh, maybe hung out with the king of Abyssinia. Uh, there was a lot of kings of Abyssinia back in those days. So perhaps he did. Um, and this uh, purports to give the lengthy story of a guy who went uh, somewhere where no one would write lengthy stories about him. So it should be uh, pretty great. Um, I think Charles Nichol has also written a book about Rambo, but I don't have that one. That was, in fairness, that would probably be an even better book than this, but I don't own it. So there we are. Uh, next, we're uh, on the uh, musicological hut with uh, Unprepared to Die, America's Greatest Murder Ballads and the True Stories that Inspired Them by Paul Slade. This is uh, literally just what it says, just what it says on the tin, starting with Stagger Lee, the greatest American murder ballad, Frankie and Johnny, Knoxville Girl, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, Tom Dooley, Pretty Polly, Poor Ellen Smith, which I don't know that one, and Murder of the Lawson Family. So here we are. Basically, it's true crime and music hut combined. So this will become in very handy if I ever get around to doing Casey Jones is Dead or any of the other notions that I have for the turn of the century uh, American, uh, turn of the last century, previous century, uh, American, uh, not so much the West, but American rurality. Uh, there's a lot of meat there. Maybe if uh, we ever do our, um, our Giants in the Earth game, some of that can come back and we can pull it up. Although a lot of them, I think, are a little later than that era. Uh, now, next on the list, if there's a book on your list I most covet, it's Jay's Journal of Anomalies by the uh, magician and historian of magic and con artistry, Ricky Jay. Yeah, Jay's Journal of Anomalies was a magazine that Ricky Jay produced uh, back in the day in the 90s. Um, and each issue talked about one specific anomalist, uh, as you imply. They were conjurers, they were con artists, they were freaks and weirdos, and he would sort of go into the Library of Magic and the Allied Arts, of which he was the curator, and he would dig out uh, rare monographs and write them up and uh, explain people like, for example, Isaac Fox, the greatest sleight-of-hand artist of uh, early 18th century London, 
or he has a thing about the uh, the uh, automaton chess player. Uh, there's a guy who crucified himself as a stage act. There's a dog that stole his act from another dog, which I think is pretty great. <laughs> and all of now, them. I've, I've heard of a, a story where like a, a a frisbee dog became a champion frisbee dog. He was a, a stray uh, in the park and he was watching a guy play frisbee with his dog and jumped in and went. I can do better than that. And like leapt in and got himself adopted. Is is this like that where, where the dog steals the trick of the other dog? I think it's less like that. I haven't read that specific essay. I read the one about Isaac Fox and I read the one about the robot chess player because I love the robot chess player. Um, but they, they're, they're, um, facsimiles, I guess, of the original the, the, in the same beautiful font with the same, uh, tipped in art plates and things like that. It's a very high quality, uh, piece of work. And then, uh, he, has added an afterword where he goes back and adds more stuff that he found out after he published the issue of uh, Jay's Journal of Anomalies. So if you are a Ricky Jay fan or a fan of weirdness, our buddy the electrical girl is not in it, I looked, but there's plenty of other wonderful things to be carried close to your heart within it, and I I, I think you are right to covet this book, which I also coveted and uh, didn't buy until, guess what, it was on the shelf at uh, good old Moe's Books. Uh, next up, we have The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History of DARPA by Annie Jacobson. What is there about DARPA that would be censored rather than redacted? Is it one of, like, uh, ones and zeros getting it on or something? I, I think that Annie Jacobson, who is a real reporter who comes up with odd explanations for things, and so I'm not sure how real she really is. Uh, for example, her uh, Roswell book um, said that the Roswell saucer was full of midgets created by Stalin. So <laughs> play that over on your tintype, people. Okay. Midgets created by Stalin. <laughs> right. So perhaps she merely meant redacted, but thought uncensored would do better. Uh, or kooky. Is this a kooky history of DARPA? It's not a kooky history. I think it's meant to be a straightforward history of DARPA. And given that they, you know, do all manner of great stuff with psychological warfare and uh, other uh, sorts of weird stuff, there's interesting things going on in DARPA that are not just inventing the internet, uh, which is what we all know and love DARPA for. But uh, the Pentagon's brain gets up to all manner of things, as one might expect if the Pentagon simply takes a bunch of money, puts it in a pile and says, go invent something, ideally something we can use as a weapon. But that's pretty much, Dar that's been DARPA's remit from the day. It's as close to pure research as the uh, U.S. government gets into. And of course, like much pure research, it goes down some pretty weird alleyways before coming up with, you know, ship-killing lasers and stuff. Uh, next up, we have The Lost Spy, an American in Stalin's Secret Service by Andrew Meyer. Who is The Lost Spy? The Lost Spy is a fellow named Isaiah Oggins, or Cy Oggins, as he was known to his friends and handlers. Uh, he was a sort of um, uh, old-school... Bolshevik, didn't like America's poverty, didn't like uh, the labor situation in America in the 19-teens, and uh, became a uh, Soviet asset starting in the 20s. And he went around in Europe to uh, run safe houses, and he posed as a book dealer, so he's got a bookhounds connection. He was put on the Romanovs uh, to uh, figure out what they were up to, and then he was sent to Manchuria to keep an eye on the Japanese. So he has all manner of uh, great stuff uh, going on in his spy career. And, of course, as with so many people who think being a Bolshevik is all fun and games, starting around 1933, when the Soviet Secret Service rolled up all the old Soviet Secret Service and threw it in the camps because it knew too much, guess what? Cy Oggins gets rolled up 
uh, Americanness notwithstanding and tossed into a gulag. And that and that'll is be the last time it's dangerous to work for Russian espionage. Ever, forces. ever, ever. It's safe as houses now, uh, assuming the house is full of Russian nerve gas. Yes. Uh, the next we have the secret team, the CIA and its allies in control of the United States and the world by L. Fletcher Prouty. How conspiratorial is this one? This is very conspiratorial. This book is, first of all, if you could look at the back cover, you would see that there's barely any margin. <laughs> If you remember way back in the day, the old um, uh, Iran-Contra trading cards and the JFK assassination trading cards, this is the book that all of those trading cards drew their factoids from. And uh, L. Fletcher Prouty says the CIA has been secretly running the world since 1947 and has been doing all manner of evil therein. And one can certainly believe that the CIA has been doing all manner of evil, and even that the CIA has had a larger hand in global affairs than most Orthodox historians think, without going full Prouty. But Prouty goes full Prouty. He's uh, played, sort of, by Donald Sutherland in the movie JFK. So if you remember that character, the mysterious colonel who uh, uh, shows up to drop mysterious hints, that's supposed to be L. Fletcher Prouty. They didn't call him that for... Uh, legal reasons, I think, in the film, but that's who he is. So this is sort of an, an ur text, a core text for your conspiratorial, uh, military industrial complex, secret team, bad guys running everything, uh, universe. So it would obviously be a great resource for your fall of Delta Green, uh, in which, uh, there would just have to be a little chapter at the end called Majestic, uh, and that would be pretty much all you would need, but it's full of all manner of, of, CIA hijinkery that uh, is handy for anyone who's interested in it. You just have to sort of be aware of the parallax that uh, uh, Prouty brings to the to the subject matter. Now, uh, next up, you have a biography of one of my favorite uh, filmmakers. Uh, he was not one of the favorite filmmakers of anyone who ever acted for him. Or I suspect and, uh, tried to produce his movies. Yes, I'm, I'm uh, familiar with the Lottie Eisner biography, but you've got Fritz Lang, The Nature of the Beast by Patrick McGilligan. Yeah, this is just, I have a interest uh in berlin uh in the weimar era that was stoked by going to berlin uh, last may and uh fritz lang sort of typifies it and inhabited it and was part of it and so that's why i picked up the biography it was mostly for his weimar years but also as you intimate he's a terrific director uh, even if he is perhaps not a person that you would want to be directed by yes he was very uh he thought uh, actors were kind of puppets and got very frustrated when people didn't do exactly the movements and the line readings that uh, he wanted them uh, to do, but has a long list of classic films behind him in both uh, Germany, uh, mostly silent, and then uh, a long career in uh, the U.S. as well. My favorite uh, noir by Fritz Lang would be The Big Heat, so you can check that out. Uh, and uh, now we come to The Dark Harbor, The War for the New York Waterfront by Nathan Ward. Uh, so is this the... Uh, the uh, labor battle against which the uh, the background of On the Waterfront occurs? Um, this is the labor battle slash anti-mob campaign against the backdrop of which On the Waterfront occurs. Um, this is a uh, book basically based on a series of uh, articles by the New York Sun reporter Malcolm Johnson, who sort of revealed the world of the waterfront to New York uh, readers and um, this sort of is uh, because no one reads New York Sun. <laughs> New York Sun doesn't even exist anymore, and certainly no one reads it. Uh, this guy, uh, Nathan Ward, went in and 
dug through it all and is retelling it as a narrative history of basically the waterfront rackets in the 1940s. And that is uh, relevant to my interests for obvious reasons. And also, I suspect, is a pretty cracking read because uh, <laughs> you've got a, a guy who's being ice-picked to death, and that always makes the story happy. Well, I think uh, while we're recovering from being ice-picked, uh, fortunately not to death, uh, we're going to uh, unspool another commercial. But I see that there's still another pile of books to get through, so we'll be right back to paw through them. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. Well, and we're back, and uh, it's a, uh, a city that I've currently been editing a manuscript about. We have Metronome, a history of Paris from the underground up, by Laurent Deutsch. Yeah, this is uh, just what it says. It's uh, a way to write a history of Paris with the focus being on what's underneath Paris, which as an as an old school dungeon crawler, I find inevitably interesting. Paris, of course, has not just the famous catacombs, but also a subway. It's got all manner of holes that were dug uh, to one or another uh, extent and one or another horrifying result uh, during the Bourbon era. And this book, at least, says it's going to go all the way back to the Druids and their burial tumuli uh, throughout the city. So basically, I don't think it's a substitute for a history of Paris, but it adds stuff to Paris. It's got, it's written in a very sort of poppy, accessible thing. There's little um, uh, sidebars that um, say, hey, you know, what about this thing? So it's uh, it's very accessible, very fun. Lots of little maps, um, uh, lots of pictures. Uh, basically, you know, maybe not your first history of Paris, maybe not even your third history of Paris, but if you are setting something in Paris and you wonder, is there anything buried underneath here? This is almost certainly the, the, is yes, tell you the answer. The answer is yes. But this will tell you yes. what and who. Yeah, yes. The, uh, it's an interesting fact that the, uh, in the 1890s, the best map of the catacombs was one maintained by medical students because their hospital happened to be on top of part of the catacombs. And in order to get uh, privacy and a place to eat away from the bustle of the rest of the hospital, they would go down into the catacombs and they would, you know, in their off hours from being medical students, they would go and explore the, the catacombs. Um, so next up, we have The Pirate's Priest by Everald Young and Kjeld Helwig Larsen. Yeah, this is a fellow who was uh, Father Labat, Père Labat. He taught mathematics and philosophy and then moved out to Martinique uh, in 1693. He was a, a, you know, a polymath. He was a, a military engineer and a naturalist and an ornithologist and a, and a medico and so many different things. 
And when he got to Martinique, there was a bunch of French pirates there. And being a true disciple of Christ, he didn't gatekeep pirates out of his life. He said, hey, pirates, come on by. Share me your stories of birds. Let me heal that gunshot wound or other uh, or, or syphilis or whatever it is you've got going on. Uh, and wrote books about the pirates and then came back to France and wrote a six-volume biography of uh, all the fun he had in Martinique and Aren't You Jealous of Père Labatt. And Everald Young and Killed Helvig Larson apparently said, it's a shame no one knows who this guy is. Let's write a book. And so they did. And uh, more pirate information. Next up, we have a title that could be about six different things, so I'm interested to know which. The Devil's Anarchy by Stephen Snelders. This is a fix-up of two short essays, or medium-sized essays. They're not that long. The Sea Robberies of the Most Famous Pirate Clays G. Compeyan and the Very Remarkable Travels of Jan Erosmus Reigning Buccaneer. So it's about two specific uh, pirates, and it provides their narratives, and then also discusses those through the lens of the notion that pirates are the anarchists of the sea. There is a very good book uh, by uh, the anarchist writer Peter Lamborn Wilson called Pirate Utopias, which is an attempt to deconstruct the fictional utopia of Libertalia, or which might have been real, but probably wasn't, as a mank of all of the ways that the pirates either lived or wished to live, making the argument that pirates were the first anarchists, that they rejected not just uh, the state structure, but also Christendom. They rejected, uh, uh the very, uh, rigid embodiment of the class structure that was, uh, the naval, uh, principles. Lots of left histories of pirates exist, uh, and this is yet another one, and it specifically reproduces those two, uh, Dutch pirate journals, and then analyzes them through that lens. So it's, if you're into anarchy or pirates or the Dutch, I guess, this is the book for you. From anarchy, we go to alchemy for the chemistry of alchemy from dragon's blood to donkey dung, how chemistry was forged by Kathy Cobb. Yeah, the only possible caveat that I would send up on this book is it's from the good people at Prometheus Books. And Prometheus are a scolding, humorless, atheist, and skeptical press. Uh, fun ruiners. They are fun ruiners. They're professional fun ruiners of the worst stripe. Uh, they have a book uh, called uh, Hitler and the Occult, which, while historically accurate, would be better titled, Hey, Let's Beat Up on Spear of Destiny, which, in fairness, <laughs> it deserves, but in other fairness, not not fair. That's not Hitler's fault. Um, so little, so little in the 1960s, uh, is immediately traceable to that dude. But this is a, a book about alchemy, and I suspect it is going to basically say, here is how you do things that look like alchemy that are actually con jobs of some sort. So here's how you make a, a lead thing look like a gold thing, or maybe even gold plate it. And it's some of the processes of alchemy looked at in the terms not just of proto-chemistry, but in the terms of stage chemistry, I suspect. Although maybe, maybe it'll just talk straight up about chemistry, but I'm not entirely sure that... So you're thinking it was how chemistry was forged, as in fake, Fake, yeah. I, I think the word forged appears here very much on purpose. I don't think that it was a uh, a ac- accidental pun. Um, that said, it probably has an awful lot of good stuff about, uh, the nuts and bolts of alchemy. It'll be a good corrective to the Jungian nonsense that alchemy is all about, uh, making the inner life beautiful, um, because no one sits and inhales that many mercury fumes just for their inner life. I can promise you that. Uh, next up, we have an Osprey Men at Arms book, number 137, for those ticking them off at home. Uh, this is The Scythians, 
700 to 300 BC by E.V. Chernenko. Yes, uh, the, the Russians, uh, and previously to that, the Soviets were very big into the Scythians because if they could identify common patterns between Scythian culture and Soviet culture, they could say, look, we too, uh, practice gender equality just like the Scythians, and we too make beautiful sculptures just like the Scythians, and we too are a threat to the civilized world just like the Scythians. So, uh, Evie Chernenko is a Soviet archaeologist, uh, writing about the Scythians in 1983, I believe, when this came out. That was the only people who were writing about Scythians were Soviet archaeologists, so you took what you could get. That said, it's still a, an Osprey book. There's still pictures because this is, as I say, from 1983, the color, the fewer of the pictures are in color. And, um, uh, the, uh, physical production of the book is a little clumsier than, than modern day Osprey books, but it's still everything you need to know about the Scythians because it turns out since 1983, there have been precious little, uh, more written about the Scythians than this. So if you're looking for your quick Scythian primer, perhaps because, I don't know, you're running a 13th age game set in the Hellenistic era, maybe you've got, um, a, a notion that you want to use the Scythians as your, as your connection to the Amazons for some other reason, which they are. Uh, this would be an excellent uh, first cut at it. Uh, so now we come to an unprecedented moment in the history of Ken's bookshelf, where I'm about to list a title that I not only have owned, but have read. What? Believe it or not. The Buddha and Dr. Fuhrer, an archaeological scandal by Charles Allen. Uh, so this is about a uh, archaeologist in the 19th century named uh, Dr. Anton Fuhrer, who thought that in uh, the backwoods of India, or the back jungles, I guess, he had found the grave site of uh, the actual Buddha himself. And uh, the scandal is uh, claims that he made for this uh, archaeological dig were uh, perhaps grandiose. Uh, but it's a really interesting sort of combination of describing uh, what was actually discovered at this archaeological site and also uh, the uh, history of all of the, the wrangling and discovering and controversy around the dig. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, obviously, you see the word Buddha and Fuhrer on the back cover of a book. You you take it down off the shelf. And when it turns out to be a tale of skullduggery and possible fake Buddhas, you keep it. And that's what I did. I should mention that the Buddha was dug up in the alleged Buddha was dug up in 1898. So that's the period of time that we're talking about. So if you have a um, uh, a game set around then, uh, maybe that can be something that, that shows up or maybe perhaps it is a double bluff and there is actually something in that crypt that is not the Buddha, but is still magical and weird. So you can have your, your, your Indiana Jonesing or your Tomb Raidering, uh, take you off to Pripwaha on the border of Nepal. Um, I guess any time down to the present and still, uh, explore this. This gives you the necessary backstory for that. Uh, next up we have The Treasures of Darkness, a history of Mesopotamian religion by Thorkild Jacobson. This sounds uh, pretty solid and academic. This is solid and academic. You can't get more solid or an academic than Yale University Press, Robin. Um, this is uh, hardcore, real deal, and it is uh, because we have sort of this notion of Mesopotamian religion being, you know, Tiamat and Gilgamesh and, you know, some gods and stuff and Inanna going down into the after underworld and stripping off all of her clothes and all that. Well, those myths emerged in time. They were not sort of just dumped onto us uh, all at once in the same way that the Greek myths emerged in time and in the way that we have gone back and said, oh, wow, look at this story of Hercules is a much later story than uh, the earlier stories. 
uh, this bit uh, about the Argo doesn't seem to have existed at all as myth, and it was an entirely literary creation. We are now, uh, or I suppose we probably always were, but it is only now that people have bothered, um, able to sort of say the same thing about the evolution of uh, Mesopotamian religion, because, of course, the, uh, the, the Chronicle of Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is a relatively late uh, version, so it is as though we only had the, Ar- the Argonautica and not um, Hesiod's Theogony, uh, in which to examine uh, Greek mythology with. We would we would lose a lot. So our buddy Thorkild has gone back and looked at the older cuneiform and the older words and said, what did people think of Ea and Enlil way back in the day uh, compared to Gilgamesh? How does those how do those stories evolve and how does changes in Mesopotamian uh, not just necessarily culture but certainly culture but just the changes in how people lived and were they being oppressed by a bunch of jerks from the mountains or not? Uh, what does that do to their religious life? And over the course of uh, three millennia, people's religions change, even if histories confidently say Mesopotamian religion was fundamentally static. Well, now this can say, no, it was not. Yes, it was static because we didn't find enough stuff. It was static because no one can be bothered to read all that. <laughs> now we have more stuff. Seems less static. This sounds sort of like a, a listicle that might be useful for, like, uh... Uh, generating 70 scenario seeds from The 70 Greatest Mysteries of the Ancient World, edited by Brian M. Fagan. So I take it this is a cornucopia of plot hooks? It is exactly that. And Brian M. Fagan, I hasten to say, is the real deal. He's a proper anthropologist and has written uh, proper books on anthropology and archaeology and trying to sort of straighten out people's understanding of the ancient world. He has a number of very good popular climate histories that I recommend uh, people who are into climate history should dig up. Uh, this is edited by him, so obviously not everything is uh, an A-lister, but all of them are A-list problems running from uh, the Garden of Eden through uh, where did farming begin, uh, what's the deal with that guy they found in the glacier, where is the tomb of Alexander the Great, a bunch of different alphabets that people can't figure out how what they are, like the Etruscan alphabet. And then we end with collapsing uh, of civilization. So we have the fall of the Minoans, fall of Rome, the uh, El Nino and what it did to the civilization in Peru. What was the deal with the Maya? What was the deal with the Anasazi? And finally, hey, what about comets? Did comets hit and kill everything? So uh, it's, as you can tell, sort of a farrago. Some of it is uh, straight up proper history and some of it is banana history that no one actually believes but is still a myth and still requires explanation such as uh atlantis um uh, or the exodus or whatever so this is uh again i don't know to what extent it is immediately more useful than going to the wikipedia page on whatever your mystery is but it has been at least vetted by someone who is not going to let utter nonsense in without highly signposting it as utter nonsense such as the theory that the argonauts uh went to the west indies not to stupid old colchis in uh georgia and that is a theory that brian m fagan or his uh or his uh agent was cool enough to put in the book and <laughs> definitely signpost says this is not a real theory we just wanted to put it in right and so the the real uh, value of something like this is if you don't know which weird mystery you want to explore here's here's a bunch of mysteries and then here's 70 possibilities and they will yeah. look neat and you'll get to see cool pictures and some nice maps well like the storyteller you are you've uh, left uh the most tantalizing title for last it's by joseph p farrell and the title is hess and the penguins 
Uh, what did, uh, I take it this is Rudolph Hess? That is indeed Rudolph Hess. And so what did he get up to with penguins? I'm glad you asked. Uh, the elliptony section in Moe's is not as strong as it is in other bookstores, which is hardly an indictment of Moe's, as you can see from the list of other things that we got at Moe's. Right, because everybody in the Bay Area is perfectly sensible and don't, they they're, don't they're need They're straight up, they're, they're, they're stayed, I would describe them in, in one word, stayed. Uh, Hess and the Penguins is part of Joseph P. Farrell's ongoing, maniacally insane uh, conspiratorial history, physics, and uh, everything else thing, uh, psychology, I guess, of the post-war and uh, World War II world. And in this particular case, we are talking about Hess's uh, connection with the Antarctic uh, exploration, hence the penguins, that fake Rudolf Hess was left in the in Spandau prison and real Rudolf Hess was off in Antarctica running uh, the uh, war against America that was evidenced if I can use that term, which I almost certainly cannot, uh, by the <laughs> the uh, abort uh, the aborted Project High Jump, the attempt by Admiral Byrd to mount a uh, carrier level strike force on the South Pole. Uh, they they sent three task force down to Antarctica in 1946 and uh, did stuff, and then everyone went back to their carriers and sailed north in a hurry. And uh, Byrd said. Um, he gave some fairly ridiculous interviews in South America, and then he came back and said, mission accomplished, Antarctica is very cold, we can't do anything there. So, uh, people who are into uh, weirdness have always thought that there was more to that story, and in this case, that more is real Rudolf Hess is down in Antarctica messing around with uh, Robert Byrd, and no doubt, uh, the Penguins. Right. Uh, but the penguins uh, still refuse to talk about it, I, I assume. Yeah, no, they they keep mum. They know what happens. You sleep with the fishes and not in a good way. Right. You don't want to sleep with the fishes. You just want to go catch fishes. Because you just want to eat the fishes yeah. and then sleep with the glaciers. Exactly. Uh, and I'm sure they figure that Hess would have been in league with leopard seals and all sorts of trouble. Yeah, he, he, he's, he's, got, he's got friends amongst the leopard seals. You can't mess with him. Don't mess with Hess. That's the motto of penguins everywhere. Um, yeah, in fairness, uh, not in fairness, before I, uh, send people rushing off to find this on the, on the used book market, um, I should mention that most of the book is Hess, very little of the book is penguins, but, uh, <laughs> Joseph P. Farrell, or his publishers at my good friends Adventures Unlimited Press know a title when they see one, so the Penguins get a cover billing, even though they are very far back in the book. Right. Uh, well, uh, again, they are uh, uncooperative uh, witnesses, that's for sure. Um, well, I, I think if we keep talking about this from the Penguins' point of view, we're in danger of making this make sense. Um, so I think what we should right, really or do... Or having leopard seals show up and um, uh, demand that we stop the podcast. Exactly. So I think we should stop the podcast, uh, but we'll resume uh, next week with uh, with yet another exciting episode, and it'll be an all-request episode next week. So uh, uh, hang on to your Woo-hoo! seats until then, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com 
backslash Ken and Robin. Avoid dead-end plot lines alongside such unerring backers as... Jeremy Forbing. Brendan Cloherty. Brian Malcolm. Jack Ulick. And Jacob Ansari. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our newest shirt is our best-selling shirt. That shirt is... Time Incorporated. Changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.